Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor for Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director for the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Mr. Matt Merker. Matt Merker is the Director of Creative Resources and Training for Getty Music. Matt has contributed to several modern hymns, including He Will Hold Me Fast. In this clip taken from our 2021 conference, Matt Merker offers us several suggestions to enhance our congregational singing. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit an unregistered house church in East Asia. There were about 90 people there. They sang hymns with deep emotion on their faces and in their voices. Throughout the service, they stayed seated. And when I asked my friend, the pastor, why, he said, well, if we stand, we'll sing louder. Our voices will carry more. And then we might get reported to the police. Can you imagine what it will sound like one day when these believers get to stand up and sing to King Jesus? I think that church is a reminder to us not to take for granted the freedoms and the opportunities that many of us have. And here in America, it seems like right now the tide may be turning uh, with the pandemic. And so I think now is a critical moment. As churches gather again, we have maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reset congregational singing, to build new habits, new patterns that could shape the church for the next generation. So how do we do that? 20 ways to enhance congregational singing in the next 20 minutes. Uh, Many of these suggestions won't be new to you. Uh, I'd encourage you to try to identify maybe three or four or five that you really want to ponder and uh, implement. Uh, And many of these suggestions are prudential. These are wisdom. I hope they do flow from biblical principles, but you've got to take them and apply them to your context. So as you listen, think about this question. What will you do differently next Sunday to be a faithful steward of this unique moment? 20 suggestions. Number one, teach a theology of congregational singing. Use sermon series, use a new members class, use the brief moments of introduction and transition during the Sunday service to explain what is happening and why it matters. God has redeemed us and gathered us as part of his people. So if you want to see congregational singing grow, you have to teach people that it matters that they congregate. You come to the family table because you have been adopted as part of the family. Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Congregational singing is a spiritual discipline. 
And so we must train our people in it. And just like we teach them a theology of the word and a theology of prayer, we have to teach people what it means to be part of a church. If you're part of the church, you are now part of God's choir. Ephesians 5.19, one of the ways that we're called to speak to one another in love within the church, to help one another grow up into all maturity, is, Paul says, by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So teach people what that looks like. Teach your people that we gather not as spectators or consumers, but as servants, as brothers and sisters. Teach your people that we sing for God's exaltation, for the church's edification, and for the world's evangelization. That's number one. Number two, pastors lead by example. In my observation, maybe the strongest predictor of how enthusiastically a church sings is how enthusiastically the pastor sings, how deeply he cares, how intentionally he gives oversight and direction to the service. 1 Peter 5.3 calls overseers to serve as an example to the flock. Nothing kills congregational singing over time like a pastor looking over his sermon notes constantly during the songs. If you're not a pastor, pray for your pastor and encourage him when you see him supporting the singing and getting excited about it. If you're the music leader, don't see the pastor as your rival. See him as your ally. God can use him as a crucial means for revolutionizing the singing culture in your church. Number three, select songs with robust theology. Colossians 3.16, I hope you know it well. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Isn't it wonderful we don't have to choose between the head and the heart when we sing. Rich truths about God stimulate deep affections for God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So like a museum curator who selects only the finest, the most prestigious works of art to display in her museum and leaves the extras just down in storage, down in the basement, we must choose hymns with words that stir us to the depth of our souls, and we should leave the other songs on the cutting room floor. A related point, number four, select songs with profound poetry. I think sometimes in our circles, in Christianity, we rightly prioritize the importance of theology. Sometimes we forget about the power of poetry to move us to sing to the Lord. We're creating the image of God. God clearly values poetry. Look at the Psalms. Look at the wisdom literature. Look at the prophets. All these different genres of scripture that he inspired that are deeply poetic. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, 
and love. Give your people a taste for poetry that will stay in their hearts and their minds for a long time. And then number five, select songs with stirring congregational melodies. Some tunes are stirring, but they're not really congregational. Other melodies may be congregational, but they're not really musically interesting or powerful. Now, of course, this is admittedly subjective, but by and large, you want to find tunes that are intuitive enough that a wide variety of people from different ages and cultural backgrounds can follow the tune, yet a tune that's also so beautiful that that same range of people want to keep singing it again and again. I'm not so much talking about musical style here, I'll talk about that in a moment, uh, but really a truly great melody can be accompanied in a nearly infinite number of styles. I mean, think about Holy, Holy, Holy. You can certainly sing that with a pipe organ, but I think you can sing it with a rock band. I, my favorite version of the song is Sufjan Stevens' sort of indie folk style. It's just that great of a melody, and it also has great words. So just because a song is on Christian radio or just because it's produced by one of the big worship artists out there today doesn't mean that the tune is actually stirring or that it's actually congregational. Select songs with stirring congregational melodies. Number six, sing about every aspect of the Christian life, including suffering. In this world, God's people experience childlessness, cancer, cruelty, calamity, Wise pastoral care means cultivating a repertoire of hymns that we can sing in the valleys of life. Psalms that are honest about trials. Hymns in a minor key. Uh, you might think songs like this are sort of depressing, or maybe they lead people to sing more softly, less enthusiastically, and, and that's just not been my experience. Songs that truly touch on the pain that we feel so deeply, and, and yet in some way also remind us of the hope we have in Christ, these can be some of the most powerful songs that your church sings. Number seven, arrange the instrumentation not to overpower, but to facilitate the congregation's voice. Not to overpower their voice, but to facilitate it. I actually think the real divide in church music is not traditional versus contemporary. I think it's actually a divide between two philosophies, two approaches, is the purpose of the instrumental accompaniment to overwhelm people with a flood of emotion and inspiration, no matter what the style? Or is the purpose to facilitate, to support, to beautify and enhance the congregation's voice? You see how critical that difference is. Uh, I'm always talking about my friend Drew Hodge, who leads the singing at Desert Springs Church in Albuquerque. The great thing that Drew does is he asks all his instrumentalists in his band to sing. Uh, they may not sing into a mic. And even if it means they have to play a simpler part on their instrument, he wants them to sing. Why? Because he wants them to model what God commands everyone in the congregation to do, which is to sing. He wants the people on the stage to be a mirror of that. And so then that affects the way that they play their instrument and the way that he arranges the songs to try to support and facilitate the congregation's voice. Number eight, try to make the style of the musical accompaniment hospitable to the whole congregation. Every church has a style. Uh, you, you can't avoid it. Now, rather than try to adopt a particular style in order to attract a certain demographic audience to your church, I, rather, I would encourage us instead to follow 
what Mike Cosper says in his book, Rhythms of Grace, and think about style and musical genre more from the perspective of hospitality. Is the music hospitable? Is it welcoming to those in the congregation, and then in a secondary sense, to those around who we hope will attend? Or is the, the style of the music unnecessarily alienating to them? And so building on my last point, my view here is that the simpler your musical approach, the more that you put an emphasis on the congregation's voice, then the more that people from different cultures and different musical backgrounds can enthusiastically join in. Now it's true, some of them will have to make bigger sacrifices than others in order to really engage with the music. It will feel less hospitable to some, and we should thank them and we should honor them for that. We should recognize that sacrifice. And again here, the question is, what's our primary goal? Do we primarily want unbelieving visitors to think our music is cool? Or do we primarily want people of all ages and all cultures to be able to sing together vibrantly? And then we can let the thundering roar of the congregation be what is so intriguing to the non-believer. Number nine, put songs in a key that fits the congregation's musical range. Here's the thing, many musical leaders are trained singers, you can go higher than your congregation, and that is awesome when you're singing by yourself. But for the church, you may have to pitch the song in a less ideal key for you personally in order to help the congregation sing out. So that actually takes a wonderful godly humility on your part. I think a good range is about a low A flat to a high E flat, about an octave and a fifth, really more ideally low A to high D, octave and a fourth. And I know we're getting deep into the specifics here, but I will share one more opinion, which is that I think the trend of having a chorus or a bridge that the first or second time you sing it is kind of way down in the range, and then later on the song it jumps the octave so that that whole section is way up in the range, I think that is really just that. I think it is a trend. I'm not sure how long it'll last. If you enjoy that, uh, I would just simply encourage you to make sure that once you've gone up the octave, that everyone in the church can still sing what you're expecting them to sing enthusiastically and confidently. So all that was musical range. Number 10, encourage people to sing in parts. You can do that a lot of ways. You can print the parts, you can use hymnals, uh, you can use projection slides that actually have the parts on them. And even if only five or 10% of the congregation understands sheet music, I think it's still worth it. I think it still adds a richness to the singing. Or you can just let people learn the harmonies by ear and tell them that you'd like them to try singing the harmonies if they want to try. And you can have the singers up front uh, model the harmonies and, and how they lead and sing. Now, it takes time and it takes intentionality to build a culture of harmony singing. But oh, if you decide to commit to it, it can be such a gift. Number 11, go a cappella often. Drop the instruments out, especially if you do have a harmony singing church. I think a cappella is not as great if everyone's only singing unison, but I still think it is a valuable tool for letting people hear the voices of those around them. I served at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for 10 years in Washington, D.C., and by far the comment that we got most from people in the church and from visitors was, Oh man, when the instruments dropped out, it was like a foretaste of heaven. I seriously encourage you, if you don't go a cappella much or at all, do it. It will transform the way people can sing when they really hear one another. And it wonderfully conveys that what's happening up on stage isn't the main thing. You know, the instruments could drop out. The power could go out. But God's people can still 
sing. Number 12, lead singing invitingly. A common mistake I sometimes see is that singers who are up on stage leading don't use their eyes or their body language to signal when the congregation should join in. I think this is one of the simplest ways to improve congregational singing. Have the leaders make the entrance to each verse exceedingly obvious. There's no reason that it needs to be subtle. Take a deep breath. Make eye contact with the congregation. You can even do the kind of head nod if you want. You can convey the emotion of the song through your eyes. And I encourage you, practice the songs at home. Come prepared so that you can sing confidently. And as you lead, when you're going into that verse, you want to make sure no one feels any uncertainty about when you expect them to join in and sing. Number 13, make the layout and structure of each song intuitive to follow. Long introductions and meandering instrumental interludes might be nice to listen to, but they tend to force the congregation to sort of have to stand around and wait, and that makes them feel more uncertain about when to sing. So when you have turnarounds uh, between verses or sections of the song, I think they should be simple, and their goal is to just provide a clear setup for when you want the congregation to come in. You want the congregation to feel ownership of the music-making process. Uh, A good transition is usually four measures long. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Give them that four measures. Make sure the chords that you're playing really set up the next verse and then show them that you want them to sing along with you. So all of that was making the layout and structure of the song intuitive to follow. Number 14, turn the lights up. Admittedly, this is wisdom. This is not biblical law or mandate, but I would say Bright stage lights on the stage with darkness in the sanctuary kind of convey that what's going on is more like a concert than like a family meeting. I think it's more important that people be able to see one another's faces than to have a particular mood or atmosphere coming from the lighting. Number 15, consider seating. Again, a a very just prudential, practical point. Can you arrange the chairs and the pews so that people can better see and hear one another sing? I recognize not every church can do this. This is not a major point, but I will say certain arrangements of the seats better reinforce the corporate nature of worship through song than others. So that's one thing to consider. Number 16, introduce new songs intentionally. You want to set your congregation up for success. I think it can be helpful to send people a new song ahead of time. Use email, newsletters, use social media. Put your upcoming new songs you want to learn for the next six months or a year on a Spotify playlist that people can sing along with. Then when you do a new song, do it three or four weeks in a row so that people right away get to a place of familiarity and confidence. Number 17, promote musical literacy. There's lots of creative ways you can help people understand music better, and that will improve congregational singing. So again, consider Spotify or a YouTube playlist where people can get familiar with your canon of songs. Go old school. Print up song sheets that people can take home and use in their personal or family devotions. I know of one church that did a singing school. Really just once a month on a Sunday night, they invited anyone who wanted to to come out, and they taught them the harmony parts to just one great hymn. But by doing that over the course of a year, those people who came out had learned 12 songs really well. And then that flavored the singing of the whole congregation because they didn't just learn those songs. They learned more about singing technique and music theory. So it was like win, 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 win all around for the singing culture in that church. Number 18, 
Promote singing in the home. If you teach children to love to sing, then you're giving a gift to the church of the future, a generation of believers who have been raised to treasure singing excellent hymns. You can use your Sunday school program to send families home with, again, one great song per month is all you need. With lyric sheets, simple recordings they can sing along with, coloring sheets for the kids to help them understand the song. You can go crazy with all the different creative ideas. But if you do that from K through fifth grade, then a child would learn 70 wonderful worship songs, and they will probably remember many of those for the rest of their life. Number 19, cultivate an encouraging and honest feedback process. Uh, when you gather with your staff, with your team to evaluate the Sunday service, which I hope you do, ask during that meeting, how did the congregation sing? That's what you want to be evaluating. So talk about if certain songs seem maybe too challenging or if there's ways that the musicians can grow. You know, be honest, be specific about that. But then also give glory to God and give specific encouragement to one another for what went well in the service. Number 20. Finally, pray. God is the one who gives us voices. He is the one who puts a new song in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is sovereign and all-powerful. He calls us to lead faithfully, yes, but He is the one who gives the growth. Do you pray regularly for the singing in your church? is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, please go to our website, biblicalworship.com. Click around to find the word podcast, and you can find show notes for season two. We're happy to share with you all that we have for free. That is what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by Evan Jarms, engineered by Isaiah Small and Caleb Sherwood. The music is by our good friends at Murphy DX. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.